you find yourself in a strange situation. You've left your home and country, and yet you feel like you fit in your adopted country, almost as if you've been here before. And the empathy you acquire about yourself and those around you is articulated in your compassion to your patients and in the beauty of your words. And it leaves deep and profound impressions. You're listening to 2233, a podcast of exchange stories. I hear chickens crowing intermittently and motorcycles revving down the street. As cars pass by, some of them are blasting Dembo music out of their windows. But in the background, the guy next door has salsa cranked all the way up and he's just singing along as he cleans his house. I smell the ocean because I lived a couple of blocks from the ocean and it was often intermingled with the scent of bizcocho, which is um, little cakes that were from the first floor because my landlord's mother had a bakery. And so often the smell of the bizcocho would mix with the smell of the ocean. And then occasionally we'd get some of the street fumes from the motorcycles that were revving past. And it's hot and sticky. And I probably just took a shower and I'm already sweaty again. And there's certainly no air conditioning, but there might be a nice breeze from the fan. This week, understanding systems to help individual people, learning to expand your limits of trust, and using words to understand emotions. Join us on a journey from Virginia to the Dominican Republic and communicating through imagery and empathy. It's 2233. We report what happens in the United States, warts and all. Exchanges shaped who I am. And when you get to know these people, they're not quite like you. You read about them, they are people very much like ourselves. And oh, that's what we call cultural exchange. Ooh, yes. My name is Irene Matia. I am a pediatrician and a poet from Virginia, and I spent my year as a Fulbright Scholar from 2009 to 2010 in the Dominican Republic. I grew up in suburban Virginia, and my family was often seen as outsiders. We were one of the only families I knew among my peer groups where all of us had different skin tones. We had French names, in some cases going further back, Spanish names. Um, We ate beans and rice on a regular basis. My family was Catholic. There were a lot of things about us that didn't really fit in suburban Virginia. And I didn't really understand or have the language to conceptualize it other than what my parents would tell me, which is that, well, our family is Creole from New Orleans. But I didn't really know what that meant. And it wasn't until I traveled to the DR that I understood New Orleans is really the northernmost part of the Caribbean, and it is a former Spanish and French colony. And so it's much, it's culturally much closer to a place like the Dominican Republic than it is to a place like Washington, D.C. or Virginia. That sort of helped me to understand my own family's history in the context of a larger American, by which I mean North and South and Central and the Caribbean American colonial history, rather than a history that was specific to the United States. But it also helped me to understand the ways in which history in the U.S. is often very dichotomized and very black and white, literally, and reality is much more complicated. And I think that 
there are other countries that embrace that nuance and that complication and a little bit better than we often do here. So I found myself writing about those themes more and more as I think about home and belonging and what it means to be from a place where you aren't currently living. I went to the Dominican Republic the year after I graduated from college, and the reason I chose the DR as my location was that I had been involved in a global health project throughout um, the last three years of college, and I had spent several summers and winters going and working in a public health partnership right outside of Santo Domingo. So I knew that I wanted to return to the country because my experiences up to that point had been very profound, and I wanted to continue working in a public health space in, in the DR. The first time I went to the Dominican Republic was in 2007. I was a sophomore in college and it was winter break. And the most profound thing that I remember was a really deep sense of deja vu when I first arrived to the country. And it took me many years to sort of understand where that came from. And I think I'm still unpacking and processing it. As I spent that couple of weeks that I was there in the country, it started to occur to me that this was the first time I was in a place where people assumed that I belonged. And unless I was with my other American friends, most of whom were white, people really thought I was Dominican. I had never experienced that before, and I didn't really realize what I was missing because I had spent my entire life in the U.S. I had never been in a place where people weren't questioning, where are you from, and assuming that I was foreign. And as somebody who whose family has been in the United States for hundreds of years, that was always a frustrating experience. And so it was really wild to be somewhere where the opposite was happening. I was having to explain to people that I actually wasn't from there. It made me feel really seen and at the same time invisible. Seen because it felt like I wasn't abnormal or an other. I was just one of everyone else. But invisible in the sense that I felt a little bit safer than maybe some of my white colleagues did. Because when I was walking down the street, I didn't feel like I was as much a target. I certainly was to some extent because of my gender. But... I didn't feel as much a target as maybe some of my colleagues and friends from the U.S. might have felt. So it was a really um, profound and fascinating experience. This poem was written several years ago, um, pretty soon after I returned from my Fulbright. It's called The Black American Gets Her Travel Fellowship and Grows Abroad. One, an exercise. The positionality of placeholders. There is something that wants to be said. There is something that wants to be said. There is something that wants to be said. There is something that wants the dark birth of words. She is on a line. The passport holds her up. Little blue woven book. Little blue book. Little blue. Little she. The empire machine is dreaming. The Empire Machine rolls over. The Empire Machine wakes up. The Empire Machine stretches. The Empire Machine does not have a lover. The Empire Machine makes coffee. The Empire Machine goes to work. Two. I promise you, that girl, she looked just like my sister, cousin, daughter, niece, comadre. You know, la morena who lives next to the colmado that always smells of raw meat and platanos. Three. What she says. 
One day I dream myself on the outside of a flying plane. I grip a rope twisted through a loop on the wing, and the wind scoops everything out of my mouth. Inside my bones, an unborn old woman is stretching and dancing. My skin feels too tight. I return, swallowing Spanish. Border control squints, interrogates, x-rays, finally says, welcome home. I am overflowing and the taxi driver sees. Ah, you miss your country? His eyes are soft. I cannot speak. Four. And regarding a bra made in, I wonder what woman with a transatlantic face like mine has worked calluses into her fingers for the comfort of nude-colored breasts, nude being khaki, as in fatigues, or nude being cream, as in of the crop. Try wearing a river, barbed wire, gold, black, dried blood, a harvest, lost languages, a seam, I mean a border, and how will you find your way home, and how will you find, and how will you find, and you how, how will you, how you, how you, home will find you, and how. When I lived there for my Fulbright experience, I also became really aware of certain privileges, the privilege of having a U.S. passport, the privilege of having the money to go back and forth and to engage in the kind of work that I was doing around public health research. That really helped to illustrate for me many of the things that I had been studying and learning about in college as an international relations major. So to really be immersed in that for a year and to see the structural effects and then on the ground how that really impacts people's lives was really profound and has shaped the way that I think about public health and medicine going forward. What I learned is really the way to translate that international relations policy level thinking to the life of an individual in front of you and how to best approach what they may be going through. People would sometimes tell me anecdotally about how in the 90s it became very difficult to sustain their, their rural livelihoods as small farmers, and that drove a lot of people into cities. And the capital is also the largest city, Santo Domingo. In cities, people often found themselves in very crowded housing situations with poor ventilation and not a lot of resources. And those are the types of conditions that really fosters um, tuberculosis, which is the disease I was studying. And so I would hear these stories over and over, and it was very clear to me how this macro-level policy had this very material impact on people's lives. We know that malnutrition is a really important factor in the development of tuberculosis, and that was certainly an issue which, again, people could relate directly back to agricultural policies and international trade agreements that had shifted the availability of fresh fruits and vegetables in some cases. So a lot of these kind of larger political forces that I had studied in undergrad were having a very real impact on people's actual bodies and lives.
the further I got in my Fulbright research, the more I began to doubt whether or not what I was doing would have a big impact. And that sort of came to a head. I remember one day in particular, there was one patient who had um, what we call MDR-TB, which is multiple drug-resistant tuberculosis. And people who have that cannot take the first-line antibiotics, so they have to take stronger and more powerful antibiotics. And those often have more toxic side effects, which ironically creates this vicious cycle where if they're less likely to take them or to be able to finish taking them because of these toxic side effects, that tuberculosis can become even more resistant. And so it's a big cause of of mortality. And the Dominican Republic has one of the highest rates of MDR-TB in the Western Hemisphere. So this one particular patient was having a really, really tough time and was just having a lot of terrible physical side effects to his medications and was clearly frustrated by this, but still kept trying to come back to the clinic for his treatment. And one day he got very angry with me and he said, you know, what are you doing here? What what are you just going to write a paper about this? How is this going to help us? And I had no idea what to say. And I thought about that for a long time. I'm obviously still thinking about it, but it made me really pause and reflect on what it means to be community engaged, what it means to try to make a change or make a difference. And it also made me think about the ways that consciously or subconsciously I may be complicit in policies, whether in the U.S. or abroad, that are negatively impacting people's lives. And so the the things that I do outside of my clinical practice, like the way that I vote and where I shop and how I travel, are all things I need to consider because they have larger ethical implications that may not be obvious. certainly informed the way that I approach community-engaged research, which is my big interest area. It's made me really careful about um, having upfront conversations with community members and organizations about what the goals of a given partnership or research project are, and to be very clear and sit down and, and say, what is what are you going to get out of this? Yes, I might be able to publish a paper from this, but what might the community get out of this? And are there resources in place to operationalize the results of this study or to turn it into a program that will be sustainable. And so it just made me much more cautious and thoughtful about approaching community-engaged research in the future. sure if I'm an optimist. I think I must be because I still feel this very strong drive to try to make a difference. And that I mean that both in terms of individual people's lives, but also systemically. I think optimism isn't the same thing as what drives me to write, but maybe what drives me to publish my work and share with other people is this optimistic idea that maybe it will have a positive impact on somebody else. So I suppose that I am an optimist deep down, but there are a lot of days that it doesn't feel like it.
learning more about the conditions in Central America and having spent a little bit of time in Central America, once I started seeing patients who had come from Central America recently, it was impossible for me to divorce their individual story from the larger social context. And of course, everyone has their own individual story and it's and it's going to be different and you can't make assumptions about somebody's particular life experience. However, I think that it's impossible to separate a person from his or her context. And so if you know even just a little bit about that context, it should open up questions and a space for curiosity and a space for trying to understand better because it, you have a little bit of an, a knowledge or a little bit of um, an in and to understanding what may be driving that person's motivations and goals and what may be the factors that have shaped their life. A very Dominican gesture is a nose wrinkle when you don't understand something. So instead of somebody saying what or the equivalent in Spanish, they might just scrunch their nose. I started doing that almost subconsciously when I returned to the U.S. My parents kept saying, why do you keep wrinkling your nose like that? And I had just picked up on it and I still have to stop myself sometimes from doing that reflexively because it's just become a part of my body, I guess, and the part of my my set of communication languages. There's a kind of closeness and a different sense of personal space that took a while for me to get used to and which I ultimately really came to appreciate. But there were times when I would be on a guagua, which is like a public bus, but it's basically a big van. It would be totally packed. Then maybe like this 15 year old girl would just sit on my lap because there was nowhere else for her to sit. (laughs) And so things like that would happen that would normally make me feel very uncomfortable or feel like this is a breach of some sort of social contract. But there, that's just how things were done. And I learned how to get used to that. And I think it kind of gave me a sense of pride that I could anticipate those sorts of situations and be okay with them. I was very inspired by the kindness that I encountered so often from complete strangers and from people who had no particular reason to be kind to me other than that they were just wonderful. I remember this one time I was traveling with my roommate and we were going to this beach town a few hours away for the weekend. We really didn't have specific plans. We weren't sure what we were going to do when we got there. And we started talking with this woman on the bus with us who was a young mother and had several of her children in tow. And she said, oh, I'm from that town you know, if you want, I can show you around. I can take you to the best beach. And my roommate and I were sort of exchanging these silent glances, trying to figure out if we should trust this person or not and kind of what was going on. And we ultimately decided to go with her. So we just went with her and she brought us to her house and she said, here's my village, you know, here's my family. And everyone greeted us as if we were family. And I think they gave us some fish for lunch. And then she said, all right, now you can just put your backpacks in my house and we'll go to the beach. And at this point, my roommate and I again exchanged glances, like, should we go along with this or not? And I just had a really good feeling about it. I mean, we had our backpacks. I don't think we had our passports on us, hopefully not, but we had a lot of our stuff. And 
we decided to do it. So we left our things in this woman's house and we went to the beach with her and with her children. And we spent a few hours there and her kids showed us how to open wild almonds and eat them. And we just played in the ocean and it was so much fun. It was a beautiful afternoon. And then when it was over, we went back to her house and our stuff was there and everything was fine. And everyone said, I hope you had a great time at the beach. Come back and visit again. And I'm just really inspired by people who have that generosity of spirit to open their home to a complete stranger from another country and to just just treat you like a human being, which I think doesn't happen as much as it should, um, because I think a lot of times we let a lot of assumptions get in the way of that. I think that when I let down my guard and stopped making assumptions, it paid off in a really big way in terms of this human connection. Getting used to living there and achieving a kind of comfort with my life there and then becoming aware in those moments of maybe taking the public transportation to the grocery store and like buying groceries in another language and talking to the guy outside the street who brings the fruit and buying groceries from him. It's just was such a, a different way of organizing my life than what I was used to in the U.S. that sometimes I wish that somebody could just have a little camera so I could show my family and friends back home, this is how I live here and this is how comfortable I am in this setting and here's how I navigate it. Dominican Republic, as well as some of my other experiences living and working in Latin America, really helped me to gain some proficiency in Spanish. And so being able to be a bilingual health provider who can speak to my patients in Spanish or in English, I can't imagine practicing without that. I have used an interpreter for other languages, and even with the best interpreter, there's still always this barrier between you and the patient that I think does a disservice overall. And of course, you can't speak every single language that your patients are going to speak, so we do the best that we can. But I think because Spanish is such a common second language for me to encounter in the U.S. after English, um, it's become an irreplaceable tool that I have in my in my toolkit as a physician. really proud of the fact that I was able to just successfully live there as an adult. I was very young when I did my Fulbright. I was right out of college and so for me college was sort of extended adolescence. I was living in a dorm, still very much financially dependent on my parents and so this was kind of the first trial of my adult sea legs and it was in a completely foreign context to boot. I really felt like the the year that I was there gave me a sense of confidence about my ability to just do normal adult things, but also to do them in a, in a foreign context and to adapt and roll with the punches and to do things in another language too. From simple things like grocery shopping and figuring out public transportation 
to making friends, sustaining relationships there. I did a research project that was qualitative research. And so most of my data was people talking in a language that was not my first language. And so it was really a huge learning process for me, but one that made me feel much more confident and comfortable about my independence just as an adult human. <laughs> So the year I did my Fulbright was actually a really important turning point for me in terms of poetry as well, because when I was there, I met a woman who had been a Fulbrighter and then subsequently just relocated to the DR and had been living there for several years. And among other things, she'd started a small press that published primarily poetry. And up until that point, I had been writing poetry my whole life and had written some fiction as well. And I had never tried to publish it. I thought maybe someday in the future I'll publish this, but I don't really know what I'm doing with this writing thing. And I mentioned it to her and she said something to me that was I still think about. She said, if you write, then you're a writer. No one is going to give you permission. That's just a title that you can claim for yourself. And I had never thought about it like that. Obviously, becoming a doctor is a very routinized, protocolized process. Um, and there's really no other way to do it, and at least in the United States, besides going through all these very specific steps. But becoming a writer is completely different. It's something that you can create for yourself and what you want that to look like, whether you feel like publishing your work or not. Some of the first poems that I ever published were about my experiences in the DR. So it really changed the way that I approached poetry as well. My experiences in the in the DR also shaped what I write about and how I write about it because being there really framed my identity and my own cultural context in a much clearer way. I think that the way I approach writing about family and identity and history is just so much richer than it would have been if I had never gone there. see them as being that different. So they both spring from the same impulse for me, which is to understand the conditions of our world and how we got to the place we are, which means a really deep analysis of context and history and place. So they're really two methodologies to approach the same question. But I think the way that poetry and the way medicine work have some overlaps. So for example, I would say science is the language of medicine and words is are the language of poetry. But both of them have ways um, in which we can be rigorous. So in poetry, we can think about form, we can think about structure in very rigorous ways. And in medicine, you know, we're rigorous with our use of empirical data, at least when we're talking about Western biomedicine. But there's also a necessity in both fields to be able to be flexible and to lean into spaces of uncertainty and liminal spaces where things don't really make sense, because that's often the most generative place. So 
A concrete example would be if you have a patient who's presenting with a set of symptoms and you think, oh, this is clearly this one thing. It's that one little bit of data or that extra hesitation before it they move on to the next question where maybe the answer lies and maybe that's what you need to pursue. Whereas with poetry, it's really difficult to write a good poem if you know what it's going to be about at the beginning. You may know where you're going to start, but you won't necessarily know where you end. So I think in both medicine and poetry, there has to be an openness and a willingness to be wrong and a willingness to make sense of whatever sort of data or emotion is thrown your way as you're constructing the poem or as you're figuring out the diagnosis. Um, so I, I see them as actually utilizing a lot of the same muscle memory, if you will. This poem is called DCA to SDQ. DCA is the airport code for Ronald Reagan National Airport, and SDQ is the airport code for Santo Domingo Airport in the Dominican Republic. One, I'm with a group of other Americans trying to get into a nightclub. The bouncer lets the boys in, nods and winks, stops me. Tu cédula, por favor. I pretend I don't speak Spanish, level and cut my eyes into razors. I'm not Dominican. He looks me over, considers, steps aside. But the sugar on my tongue has already dissolved, rotten aftertaste thinly coating my teeth. I'm strung in the cobwebbed night, dense as 200-year-old cotton bales, as sugar cane stacked in wagons, dense as the salt-iron throb of blood. Of course I want to leave then, but the boys are already throwing back rum shots, and I don't have the heart. Two. The incredible thing about this country is that we don't see race here. It's all a melting pot. Oye de Sancocho, everyone does bachata the same, you know? My friend's face is a cup of cream. Our parents sew skin, fix hearts. Our hands are soft as clean gauze. Our necks are smooth, our breaths confident. When we smile, our teeth look like boarding passes. We are smiling in a restaurant in the old colonial city, perfect slices of stewed goat on our white plates. I look down and think I see the goat's heart. I want to say, there is a faint bleating coming from my plate, but I don't have the mouth. Three. What do you call a goat trying to get into a nightclub? A billy club swinging. What do you call Billy and his friends throwing words like darts at you? A faint bleeding. What do you call a game of darts in the colonial city? A morning. What do you call a game of darts in Washington, D.C.? A body club morning. What do you call a ghost that dances on your plate? What do you call a bleeding morning of darts? A word throwing clubs in the city. A morning dance in the club. What do you call the precise form of surgery in which a heart is removed from a person while she is still walking, still speaking, and placed on a white plate? What do you call what sugar does to a body? How it melts, sticks, dams the pipes, slows blood as it tries to push, slows the tuckering heart, ties it up like a goat. What should we call this type of drowning? Twenty-two thirty-three is produced by the Collaboratory, 
an initiative within the U.S. State Department's Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs, better known as ECA. My name's Christopher Wurst. I'm the director of the collaboratory. 2233 is named for Title 22, Chapter 33 of the U.S. Code, the statute that created ECA. And our stories come from participants of U.S. government-funded international exchange programs. This week, Irene Matud described her time and shared two of her poems from her exchange to Santo Domingo Dominican Republic as a Fulbright scholar. For more about the Fulbright and other ECA exchange programs, check out eca.state.gov. We encourage you to subscribe to 2233. You can do so wherever you find your podcasts. And we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at ecacollaboratory at state.gov. That's E-C-A-C-O-L-L-A-B-O-R-A-T-O-R-Y at state.gov. Photos of each week's interviewee and a complete episode transcript can also be found on our webpage. And that's at eca.state.gov slash 2233. Special thanks this week to Iran for her stories, poems, and compassion. I did the interview and edited this segment. Featured music was Bitter Roll, Tendon, and The Trestle by Blue Dot Sessions. The Sound Effects Man by Shelley Mann. Big Disco Ball, Instrumental by Josh Woodward, and Down the Line by Gene Ammons. Music at the top of each episode is Sebastian by How the Night Came, and the end credit music is Two Pianos by Tagir Lius. Until next time. <laughs>